and nonviolence is happening all over the world, though it's underreported in the mass media. Our next segment is the Nonviolence Report with Michael Nagler. Michael's the president of the Meta Center for Nonviolence and author of The Third Harmony, Nonviolence and the New Story of Human Nature, as well as the Nonviolence Handbook. He'll share news, events, and analyses which might even inspire you to take action where you live. Let's tune in. Greetings, everyone. I'm Michael Nagler, and you are at Nonviolence Radio. And what I'd like to do is to attempt three things in a brief amount of time. I'm going to do some reflections on the recent event of the guilty verdicts that have occurred in the trial of former policeman Derek Chauvin, and then a few select resources and some indigenous movements going on right now. So to begin my reflections, you know, as Plato rightly pointed out, if, if we did not have decay or justice, we could not live together as human beings in a city as opposed to our former animal existence though now we know that even animals have some sense of justice. However, the photo in the paper of former policeman Chauvin being led off with his hands handcuffed behind his back and his head hung down did not really give me a lot of reassurance. This is Darnell Moore from the project Healing Our City, and it is a prayer to, as he says, integrate soulful prayer into our world. It's a part of a virtual prayer tent for Minneapolis that was held on April 21st. Good morning, good day, wherever you might be around the world. I'm thankful to be invited into this space um, and to gather with you all uh, some thoughts shifting between joy and lament, relaxed shoulders and raised fists. Now that the judge has read into the public record a three-count jury's verdict in the case of Derek Chauvin, what are we to feel? What are we to think? What are we to do? Some of us might feel relieved, eyes flooded and faces as wet as rivers as we reflect on a reality that justice has been more of a poetic aspirational idea rather than a material fact for the most part when it comes to redressing the harm done to black people in the US. Some of us may feel relieved because yesterday's verdict felt like something akin to justice. So we cried, we rejoiced, we may have offered up thanks to God, to spirit, to ancestors. Some of us have depleted our deposit of tears I know that I wasn't sure if I could shed any more, but I did. And I wasn't sure if my face was wet from relief or because as I watched in virtual community with others who breathed a long and collective sigh, or because my sister admitted in our family group chat that she was crying as she watched. And as she watched and cried, I thought about the faith that she must summon every time her 16-year-old son Samaj leaves the house fully enraptured in his black youthfulness only to be read as a threat by some, or because the loved ones of George Floyd might finally be able to rest in their grief, though how can one rest knowing that a guilty charge will never bring back their beloved? Or hold one another closely because they know how easy it is for someone to snatch away the very body that is in their grasp and heal outside of the purview of a camera or sleep knowing that the person who ended the life of their loved one won't slip out of the grips of accountability 
like so many other police officers before him. I don't know why I cried while watching an officer of the court cuff a former law enforcement officer who killed a black person, but I know how I felt. I felt like a driver in a vehicle that has been stuck in a traffic jam for so long, whom after having waited with impatient patience, finally begins to move ahead with a deep awareness that further along, you might come upon a traffic jam yet again. I imagine that is how many of us felt. Others felt angry still, and rightfully so, because they might recognize that there exists a form of material justice that we have yet to fully imagine and experience in the US because the practices we employ and tactics we use are the consequence of the limitations of our moral and spiritual imaginations which have been shaped in a country where justice looks like punishment, looks like cages, looks like cuffs, looks like police policing the police after the police kills one of us, looks like more violence as a response to violence. I'm shifting between joy and lament, relaxed shoulders and raised fists because the fact that there are few options outside of other possibilities, the greatest of which would be George Floyd still being alive. The only option then left at our disposal is our reliance on a system that itself needs to be raised. These are complicated thoughts and feelings. Imagine if you can a world where a sentence might result in someone like Chauvin having to commit to service over an extended period of time in a very community on the very streets in which he took George Floyd's life. Imagine a world where Floyd's family and the community could determine the form of retribution, restitution that Chauvin would be committed to performing a type of service that demands he bring life to the place where he once brought about a death. Imagine a world where the easy way out ain't a cage, but is replaced with the harder work of deep accountability, self-reckoning, the seeking of forgiveness, the redressing of harmful systems and reconciliation. What are we to thank and feel and do today, the day after the guilty charge ring out? It is our job to imagine differently to use that imagination to conjure the type of transformative and just practices that might ultimately result in Black folks' aliveness and the abolition of all that keeps us from having life, whether it be anti-Black racism, prisons, or police. I want a future where justice is not violence refashioned as beauty, as a cage, and a world where Black death is not a requirement for any of it. I want a future where two hours or so after we might shed tears because of the conviction of one officer who killed a black person, we won't discover that a 16 year old black girl is killed and find ourselves impatiently patient in the traffic jam yet again. May it be, may it be for Micaiah Bryant. Thank you. As Darnell Moore said, violence in response to violence. In other words, if this is the best our system can do, then the system itself is at fault, both for bringing about the confrontation that led to George Floyd's death with its undeniable racial element, and for coming up with this lame and unhelpful response of continuing violence against violence. So I think those of us who feel relieved are half right. Uh, Justice has been done in a situation where justice is rarely delivered, but we should be concerned that this has done nothing to get us off the spiral of violence. The analogy here is the madman with the sword 
a story that uh, Gandhi offers that uh, he was asked, what, you know, what should you do if someone is coming through the village with a sword, threatening the community? And it may be surprising to us, but he said, the person who dispatches that lunatic will have done himself and the community a favor. However, if you look more closely, he also goes on to say, but we should ask ourselves, what kind of culture have we built such that the people are driven mad and take to violence? So uh, we've been asked whether a restorative justice approach would work in this situation. And I think it's important to realize that there really is no situation in which nonviolence, for example, would not work. I mean, in the case of the madman with the sword, you could, quote, dispatch that person in a state of anger, uh, out of fear, or you could do it in a state of regret and then do the necessary reflection and try to learn from the event what can we do to make the world a better place. So uh, similarly, restorative justice doesn't really stop at an extreme and extremely violent and hate hateful episode of harm, of a crime. I'm reminded of an essay that came out, oh, back in 1996 by the colleague Ralph Summy called Nonviolence and the Case of the Extremely Ruthless Opponent. So there's no question that we have here an extreme case. And there's no question, again, that we've done the best we could within the system. But it will only be a nonviolent act if we ask ourselves, how would restorative justice apply here? And I'm really impressed by something that Darnell Moore says, that if some restorative justice could have been arrived at, so that the offender ends up with a, say, a long series of social service acts to repay for what he has done, instead of just being a destroyed individual with guilty, 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 ringing out in all the headlines. This is, again, not a question of whether he deserves it or not. It's a question of whether this is helpful or not. Imagine if we had a restorative process he ended up doing a, a lot of community work. He might, in Darnell's words, bring life where he has brought death. So now let me share with you a few of the resources that are available. Uh, one group called Hollaback, H-O-L-L-A-B-A-C-K, which we have interviewed here. Uh, they are now offering bystander intervention trainings and we heard that 40,000 people, or 45,000 people actually, showed up uh, for their trainings, which is a really a new world. It's, uh, it's extremely encouraging. And if you think that's encouraging, you just wait till I get further on in this broadcast. So there's a free concert coming up, which Meta is co-sponsoring. It's with uh, Campaign Nonviolence and Pace Bene, and it's an online music festival which happens August 21st, and it's called For Goodness Sake, Music for the Nonviolent Future. 
I remember when I was in Germany some years ago being impressed by the quality of the music that activists and musical people were able to produce there uh, compared to the, you know, not very exciting stuff that was going on here. But this, this is changing. So more from Campaign Nonviolence. I'm quoting from their website here. This month, we are bringing you a new event every week to help you dive deeper into the practice of nonviolence. The first that's coming up is a nonviolence online community course, which has uh, already started. And they are happy to report that already there are 700 actions planned for their action week in September. Uh, Again, that's an impressive number, but you just hold on. So once a month, Rivera Sun will be holding a skill building webinar and many other resources that they're offering. I'm also happy to say that we have another university project that I didn't know about before, which again connects both academia and the world of activism, as is happening here and there. And this one can be discovered if you look at sustainingpeaceproject.com. And that's coming from Columbia University. So uh, a coming event. On May 15th, we will have the second annual joint memorial by a very important Israeli organization, a Palestinian-Israeli, called Combatants for Peace. And the first one, they had a little bit of technical difficulty because here's what I've been leading you up to. 200,000 people jammed the discussion. Immediately after that, they'll have a broadcast. And now for just mentioning one indigenous action with the Line 3 and the Dakota Access Pipelines threatening indigenous land, youth from the Standing Rock and Cheyenne River Sioux tribes ran 2,000 miles to deliver a powerful message to the new administration. And I regard this as the perfect way to do symbolism in nonviolence. It was symbolic. They could have just hopped on a plane, but it was also real. It was a concrete thing they had to get from here to there. Also happy to say that there's been a great deal of coalition building up and down the Western indigenous communities around this issue. Also, you might have a look at a group called Defend the Sacred Alliance. That is an international alliance of leaders of indigenous communities along with social movement people and systemic alternative planning. And they recently released a statement about the final injury that's been sustained by the peace community of Colombia, which is the country of Colombia, called San Jose de Apartado. And here's their statement, or one of them, one of their leaders said one time, the community's power consists of its ability to transform pain into hope. Hope is when we no longer hate the murderer. Hope is when we build collectively, when we make life a reality today where we are. So with those inspiring words, I will leave you for this week and uh, hope to speak to you again soon with more inspiring news from the world of nonviolence. Together, arm in arm, with peace in our hearts. We're gonna walk together, arm in arm, 
together arm in arm so our sisters and brothers won't come to any harm and we know we got peace in our hearts we're gonna walk with every color and tribe with peace in our hearts we're gonna walk with every color and tribe with peace in our hearts we're gonna walk with every color and tribe we're stronger together when we're on the same side and we know we got peace in our hearts we're gonna stand for the earth and our children too with peace in our hearts we're gonna stand for the earth and our children too with peace in our hearts we're gonna stand for the earth and our children too it take everyone to make this dream come true and we know we got peace in our hearts Peace in our hearts. 